if you're trying to be innovative and creative, if you're actually trying to do those things, then you need to make those connections with each other, which are really hard when you're online. Creativity is can be much better if you've got a larger group of people, if you've got lots and lots of diverse ideas coming together and you get more creativity around that. Being creative requires a, a real degree of vulnerability. You need to be able to be really vulnerable. Hello and welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith, and we're on a mission to lift the veil on creativity at work and beyond through the lenses of ideas, stories, and visual cognition. And this week's guest is another neuroscientist, Dr. Mark Williams, an Australian who is currently an honorary professor at Macquarie University. An absolutely fantastic story of one of the leading lights in the world of neuroscience, yet effectively failed school. So... An incredible journey. Chris, what did you take out of it? Uh, so for me, one of the big lessons was about technology uh, and the, the impact it has on our brains, the negative impact it has on our brains, particularly the creative brain. Switch off all your notifications, get away from technology and fire up different parts of your brain. That was a big one. Um, he talked about being a honeybee, um, not a locust leader. I thought that was really interesting. Spreading good news, spreading ideas around the place. I thought that was inspiring too. Yes, not eating everything in sight. Um, so he, yeah, look at the thing that I took away from the from the discussion. There's so much. It was about this thing about human connection, and particularly about the fact that one of the best things you can do for your mental health is to sit down with someone face to face, live, and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Uh, it's that human connection. So let Mark tell it in his own words. <laughs> let's get him in. Dr. Mark Williams, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thanks for having me along, Paul. Mark, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problems at all, Chris. So, Mark, just to get us started, can you give us a little bit of a, an insight into some of the key moments in your life and career that, that directed you to where you are now? <laughs> Good. There's, there's been a few, so I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. But um, it, I think probably the one thing that most people don't expect from from me um, when they see my, my resume is that I grew up in some country town in Victoria and I actually hated school when I was at school so um, I didn't actually go to school a lot um, and I was one of those kids that the teachers didn't connect with um, and I was told by my principal when I was about 16 that I'd be dead or in prison by the time I was 25 and that I should go and get a, a uh, apprenticeship do an apprenticeship at the local abattoir so um yeah i wasn't a fan of, of uh thinking and i i really didn't think i was very intelligent at all um based on you know my marks and all the rest of it it wasn't until i was 25 and two of my friends had uh drug overdoses which made me rethink what i was doing and so i went back to tafe and did uh, a tafe degree and there was a physics teacher there that just saw something in me that I'd never seen before. And he convinced me that I should go to university. I wasn't actually planning on going to university. I just wanted to get a decent job. Um, and I thought maybe having you know, a good HSC result might result in that. Um, and so I, I did. I went to did a Bachelor of Science degree, uh, fell in love with science, uh, fell in love with both physiology and psychology. So I did a double degree in physiology and, and psychology. 
uh, which was quite unusual in those days because uh, this was before there was such a thing as cognitive neuroscience. Um, and then when I came out of that, cognitive neuroscience sort of became became a discipline in itself, which is basically just looking at awake humans um, and their brains and how their brains work. So, yeah, it was, it was a pretty exciting time for me. Um, and from there, I ended up working at MIT, which was amazing. I mean, that was really was when I realised that I actually had a lot more to offer than I never thought I... I mean, most people think when you do a PhD, you might realise that. But I didn't really realise that, that until I got to MIT and saw the amazing people. And I could actually... I, I could stand up in front of them and actually have something worthwhile to say that I realised that, um, yeah, what I was doing was really worthwhile and that I had had something to contribute to society. And I've been trying to do that ever since. And if I'm right, Mark... A lot of neuroscience has benefited from technical advances, particularly with fMRI scanners, that kind of thing. So we can actually look into the brain and see it. Is, is a lot of your work involved that, or do you have other techniques for finding out what's going on inside the cranium? Yeah, no, it's been it's been the cognitive neuroscience really came about because we started having access to MRIs to begin with and EEG, um, which is another way. One MRIs, we can look at the structure of the brain, whereas EEG, we can look at the temporal dynamics of the brain. And so those were the two big things that happened that really changed um, neuroscience and brought on cognitive neuroscience. So cognitive neuroscience came out of um, our access to MRIs, and then we started developing techniques with, uh, with MRIs. So, yeah, I was one of the first to do. I remember my first postdoc was at Melbourne Uni before I went over to MIT and I spent most of my days in the basement at St. Vincent's Hospital because we had access to the MRI down there, um, but we did had no idea how to actually use it um, or what, whether or not we could actually get functional data out of it. Um, so yeah, I spent three years um, sitting in the basement down there trying to get functional data out of the MRI, which is a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, and I did a lot of you know really cool stuff with it. Uh, which was which was great. Is that the sort of like you know the nerd version of the photocopier in the in the office that the the science tubes are yeah. <laughs> running copies of their brain? Oh, yeah. Mark, for, for people listening, you've kind of given us a, a little insight to the kind of technical world of a neuroscientist and being stuck in the basement with this incredible bit of technology. But most people won't be able to see what I can see, and in the background. There is the just the neck of an electric guitar. So tell us a little bit, because I get the feeling you're not a pure, pure scientist. I think there's more to you than science, based on seeing that guitar in the background. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish I was a much better uh, musician than I am. My partner is also a neuroscientist. She's an amazing musician. She uh, plays in big bands and has most of her life um, and, yeah, plays multiple instruments. I strum on the guitar occasionally and try to pretend <laughs> that I can make decent sounds out of it. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I love playing guitar. I love music. I love jazz. Um, another beautiful thing about being at MIT, of course, was um, having the opportunity to hear the jazz that's there because that, you, you, the Berkeley mm. School of Music is in Boston. It's not over where Berkeley is. It's actually in Boston. Um, and, yeah, some of the, the residents there and the students from there are uh, just amazing, the, the music that you heard. Um, at the pubs and so on, which is fantastic. Is there a connection between what you know about the brain and music? You know, what I guess I'm saying is if, if you want to get your brain in top gear, should everyone play music? And should it be jazz? <laughs> yeah. I would say yes, but that's, that's from a personal point of view. Um, yeah, no, there is. I mean, it, it is surprising how many neuroscientists or scientists, in fact, who play musical instruments and are amazing at 
play musical instruments and play in bands and do all those sorts of things. Um, it's a little scary how many of us are, are really more obsessed with music than we are with science. Um, and so that is that is an interesting anecdote. But exercising our brains really important and, and keeping our brains healthy by exercising them is really important. Our brain's just like any other muscle um, and you either use it or you lose it, um, which means that you've got to keep it exercised and, and playing a musical instrument, of course, is exercising different parts of your brain than when you're, say, sitting in front of a computer and, and trying to work out the code that you need to get a, an MRI to, to do the sequences you want. So it's a really good way of doing that. Learning, uh, learning a new language is also an awesome way um, to keep your brain healthy and stave off things like Alzheimer's and so on. So yeah. anything that that's challenges you, um, and makes you use yeah lots of parts of your brain are always yeah really really good things to do. So so Mark, um, one of the things we you know Chris and I this is called the Common Creative and Chris and I are on a mission to lift the lid on creativity in life and business through the lens of ideas, stories, and visual cognition. I've said that a few times. Um, <laughs> and 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 you've got a new book coming out. Uh, well, it will probably be out by the time this maybe comes there. But the connected species, how the evolution of the human brain can save the world. And what I'm really, what we're really interested in is about this whole thing about connection and collaboration and creativity and, you know, and the evolution of that. When we were talking earlier, you know, I was trying to sort of work out whether, you know, you got a better chance in your in-group, in your tribe, or you better better chance with divergent group of people, um, which obviously have different uh, social benefits, but in creativity, you know. So, so how does it play out uh, in, in in when connecting with other people, whether you know them or don't know them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, one one of the problems I think with with the way we look at tribes now, or the way we look at in group versus out group, is that there's been this common terminology of calling them tribes um, because of a couple of different authors who've written books um, about this. And, and the problem is, which which is what I go into in the book in the book, is that our in-group and out-group mentality isn't static like that. It's not that we only have one tribe and therefore we've got to only associate with that one tribe. That Our in-group and out-group actually changes based on our situation. So a great study that was done um, over in the UK where you know, you've got these fanatical football players um, and the, the, the um, supporters that, that support them, um, they just got uh, Liverpool... For example, I'll just give Liverpool as an example. They got a Liverpool supporter in, and they talked to the Liverpool supporter about the um, the local football league and how how good it was, and things that were going wrong with it, and all the rest of it. And that wasn't the actual experiment. What they did was they they filmed them as they left the experiment, and then there was somebody who was walking towards them who had a Manchester jumper on, and they would drop something in front of them. And and if they'd been talking about the football league, then that in group obviously would be about their actual football team, Liverpool versus Manchester and all the rest of it. And so they just walk straight past the person. They wouldn't actually help them. They wouldn't help them pick the stuff up. Yeah. They'd you know, basically ignore them. If, however, they had gone in there and they had talked about the European League versus the, the, the local league and the issues there and how good the local league was... Um, that they barracked for, and therefore they they increased the group. They actually talked more about that bigger, larger group when they walked out, and the person wearing a Manchester jumper would drop the um, stuff. They'd actually stop and help them, and then have a chat to them about how cool the UK <laughs> league was and all the rest of it. Right. So it all depends on 
on where your in-group and out-group is at the time. That actually changes and changes quite can change quite dramatically. And so we've got to remember that we can actually increase our in-groups um, and our out-groups. They're not these set tribes, but rather they're just a mentality that we have at the time. And so if, if you're... So why am I telling you this? The reason I'm telling you this is that, yeah, creativity is can be much better if you've got a larger group of people, if you've got lots and lots of diverse ideas coming together and you get more creativity around that. But you've got to feel it that everybody in that group is actually part of your group. And Google have done huge amounts of work around this and how to great, create great teams where they all feel as though there's psychological safety and they can all work together. Um, but also about how you put lots of people to different people together so that you get more creativity from that because there's lots of different people within that group. So what you've got to do is is you want to have uh, be thinking about the wider group and have lots of people in there from different backgrounds so that you can actually be more productive, more, more creative and more innovative because you've got lots of different ideas, but you've got to be willing to, to widen your group. You've got to be willing to actually sit there and go, these are all part of my group and this is really important for me to do that. Um, I've sat on a couple of different think tanks and different organisations have done that in, in ways that have been really good and others have done it in ways that have been really bad. For example, I, I sat on one, I won't say what company it was, um, but when we went in there, we were all given name tags, which is great, but we also had blazoned on there what university or what uh, company we were from. <laughs> and there was this big emphasis on whose company was or whose organisation was coming out with the better ideas. And, of course, that then narrows your in-group and you're not actually working or collaborating with the other people in that, in that think tank. Whereas, yeah, others I've worked with where we've all come together and we've talked about how we want to improve the world and how we want to actually um, make things and create things that, that are more global and having a real impact. And that then results in everyone working together because we're thinking more globally and we're thinking more, you know, how can we all do this together as one because we're all after the same goal. So I think setting that goal, which is for all of us to, you know, benefit from this, whatever you happen to want to do, is really important and then working on it from that point of view. So you all feel as though you're part of that one group, even though you're from desperate um, <coughs> backgrounds. So I'm, I'm wondering, does, that's, I wonder that, biggest advantage of AI then because if if I've heard AI described as like an alien intelligence it's not created by a single person it's it's as if it's arrived from a different planet and that if by describing it as an alien intelligence surely identifies everyone on planet earth as part of the one group united in managing or taming this alien force but is, I'm saying it in a light-hearted way but is there a chance that we can actually solve some of the problems between different groups on Earth by by addressing a problem which is not from Earth or not from humans anyway. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. Personally, I mean, I, I don't think we have artificial intelligence yet because the, the algorithms actually that they're using are based on support vector machines, which means that they're not actually creating anything new. They're actually just putting together what we've already got out oh. of there. Um, so personally, I, I don't think it's, it's intelligence. And I think hopefully if somebody comes down from another planet, they will have real intelligence and they'll actually be able to create something new and help us to, to move forward rather than just regurgitate what's actually out there. But I do agree that actually thinking about it from the point of view of, of you know, from an alien planet is really cool, cool. because 
then everybody is part of your group, right? And, and I talk yes. about that in my book. That you know, rather than talking about you know, as being from the, me being from the northern beaches, I could talk about being from Sydney, or I could talk about being from Australia, or I could talk about being from planet Earth. And if I'm from planet Earth, then I'm going to be happy to collaborate yes. with whoever yes. yeah is out yeah. there and willing to collaborate with me. So, so Mark, just to sort of bring that back, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea about you know being in this group and how we perceive others. And I'm assuming in your book, but I heard you on another podcast talking about the fact that, you know, if they're in the in-group, you know, we, we see a smile as happy and friendly, but if it's the out-group, we see a smile as a smirk or being sarcastic. And I think you used the example of Donald Trump, which I, you know, totally get. You know, maybe his friend thinks he's really happy and I think he's, you know, being a smart-ass, you know. But so, uh, and obviously in collaboration, and, you know, you've all, all been in that, you know, group where you're doing ideation and, you know, and someone comes in, you know, like really aggressive stuff. And I call it, I call it collaboration rather than collaboration um, where, you know, where someone's just trying to, you know, get their own way or, you know, they're very recalcitrant, maybe because they're feeling, they they feel they're, you know, they're outside of the group and, you know, they're not being heard, whatever it might be. So, you know, in terms of the name tag thing was very interesting. Are there any other things that people can do uh, to you know, to circumvent that from the start to, so you can ideate better together in a group. Yeah, it's, with uh, I probably don't have to talk to you guys about this, but being creative requires a, a, a real degree of vulnerability. You need to be able to be really vulnerable to be creative because you've got to make mistakes. And if you're not making mistakes, then you're not really being creative. And so um, setting it up where, especially if you have somebody who's seen as the leader or someone who's controlling the group when it all first starts, who's willing to go in there and be very vulnerable, show that they're willing to be very vulnerable is really important to start off with, and then have some sort of uh, game, if you like, where everybody's vulnerable in some way. So, you know, doing things like you know, tell us, you know, something awful that happened to you when you were a child, or tell us, you know, having something there that you can do that shows that we're all willing to be vulnerable and we're we're all in a safe space where we can be creative is really important to begin with so that you don't get those, I call them bullies, to be honest. Those, those people who walk in and want to take over the situation I want to show that they're smarter than everybody else. But they don't usually come up with many very good creative ideas because they want to be safe, right? They also want to be yeah. safe and they want to come up with ideas that are actually going to be, yeah, accepted. And so they'll be very limited in what they're actually willing to do and they'll limit everybody else as well. Um, personally, I think you're probably better just to get rid of those individuals and start again. Yeah. Um, because it's very difficult to get them on board um, because it is usually due to a personality issue there or clash. Um, and usually because that individual is very insecure um, and you can't be vulnerable um, within that t- type of group um, if you are very insecure. And it is usually due to some sort of insecurity that they they come across that bullish way. I've, I've got a tip for anyone listening. If, if you have a situation where there's a personality clash or a, or a bully that turns up, I, I, the, the tip is to break the group into smaller groups so that that person who's disrupting everything, so their, their damage is limited. And then everyone else who's not in the group can get on with the task. And yeah, you, you're, you're in a group of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Siloed, yeah. <laughs> you're making tea for everybody else. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, this topic of safety, I think, is so important. It seems to be going going up everyone's agenda. As, as Maybe it's in response to awareness. Maybe it's in response to need, that we need bigger, better, braver ideas. 
more and more. Certainly the, the old world of business anyway was about testosterone, aggressiveness, critical thinking. You know, it's good to strut around and, and at least bully ideas, if not each other. Um, what, what Am I right? Do you, is it changing that, that we are becoming more interested and perhaps more aware of the need for safety to, to support creativity? I think we're becoming more aware of it because of, I hate to say it, but devices. I think devices um, allow, well, devices don't give us feedback as to how someone else is feeling. So we're more, we're more likely to be nasty to each other on devices and there's a lot more negative um, interaction, especially via emails. And because, you know, most businesses are now running via emails where you don't get all those really important information that we get when we're face-to-face with someone. Uh, we find that there's a lot more divisiveness within um, organisations and within groups. And so, um, yeah, we're more aware of because of that. And so, therefore, we're actually trying to stop it. But I think we're trying to stop it in the wrong way. We're trying to stop it in the organisations without actually stopping it on the internet. And I think we need to stop it on the internet first. And that'll actually help with everything else that's actually happening. Um, and we're sort of, we're trying to... Yeah, trying to fix a. Yeah, we're trying to fix the water from going over the edge of the boat rather than actually fixing the hole in the bottom of the boat, um, or trying to bail out the boat rather than actually fixing the hole in the boat, uh, which isn't work um, and isn't good. Um, but I think that's why we're more aware of it. Um, I, I have, I, you know, as an aside, I have a good colleague who runs the Institute for Sustainable Leadership, and they've for a long time talked about honeybee leadership versus locust leadership and honeybee organisations versus locust organisations. And they've um, studied a whole bunch of organisations over in, mainly in Europe, um, where they're, they're more honeybee, where they've always had this as part of their organisation about supporting mental health and supporting individuals and having very innovative um, things going on in those organisations. Uh, whereas your locust ones are more around having this alpha usually alpha male, but having this very aggressive individual at the top and then he decides what happens and he just dictates to everybody else, um, which doesn't work and doesn't result in sustainable um, organisations, unfortunately. It usually just kills them. I had thought about that point you made, that devices don't communicate feelings, and that's why it's much easier to exaggerate or kind of so we we see well, everyone knows that you know more hate more racism more sexism more stuff online and and I, I guess what you're saying is that's because a device doesn't capture that person's feelings or or communicate well i'm thinking about the sort of thing that sort of terrible things people write but it's 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 certainly a lot safer to say outrageous things online um, should is there a solution? You said that we're, we're tackling it, it, it more generally. We should start with the way it's tackled on, on the internet. Um, does that mean we need devices that communicate feelings, or, or is it just a case of saying, can you just stop doing this because it's so obviously wrong and vile? How do you tackle it on the internet? Guess sort of yeah, so there's algorithms that are run in the background of all of these um, tech companies, the social media companies, and you know, Google and so on. And these algorithms are biased towards showing us the more negative that's actually on there because we know that we are more likely to attend to that. It actually doesn't sustain our attention, but it actually does capture our attention. And so that, that those algorithms can be changed quite easily. Um, and if they were forced to change, then we would get 
less of that negative information out there. We also know that it's the influences within those groups that actually push the agenda in one direction or another. And if you actually get rid of those influences from those groups, you'll actually get rid of it. And we actually, um, especially political groups, actually come closer together when you get rid of the influences within the groups that are actually influencing what's going on. So if you got rid of things like likes and therefore got rid of any need to influence within those groups, you'd actually get uh, more consensus across groups and people would actually be more positive on uh, on social media and so on. Plus, you wouldn't get this vitriol that we often get. So getting rid of likes and, and getting those tech companies to stop using these algorithms that we know cause these issues, then that would those two things would make huge difference. So having less likes can takes away the battle for recognition. And my point of view, I want to get that I'm going to say something very abrasive in order to get people to kind of at least either give me a like or at least give me feedback, which is going to make me feel good about myself. So take that away and say, let's discuss an idea. Then suddenly, oh, you can have an exchange. Oh, that's very helpful. It, it, I think we've we've grown a generation of people who are you know, likes is the is the cover of their digital food. That's what they they've learned to consume. Yeah, and then you've got a whole bunch of influencers out there that that's their bread and butter, right? The more likes they get, the more advertisers are willing to actually pay for them to have their advertisements on their whatever channel or their their social media page or whatever. So again, that's that's their currency. And if you get rid of that currency, then they no longer can make money out of it. So all of a sudden, it's not worth being a complete a hole on the internet yes, yeah. um, to get all those likes that they, they are all after, right? Being, being very extreme. And, and you've got to be extreme these days because there's so many people on the internet trying to get your attention. Um, and so they're, they're extreme so that they'll get the likes so that they can then get paid more money. A, a message for our listeners. If you are listening to Mark's points here, I'd love it if you could give us a rating. Um, five, ideally. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of one. Mark, I, I just wanted to, to sort of extend that a little bit further, uh, something that you cover in your book about, you know, social networks are anything but social because, you know, they're, they're anti-social and you talk about this thing of earlier on, uh, someone suggested that, you know, this idea of, you know, if you're in the same suburb, you could connect, which I think might be Tinder uh, now, but um, uh, and I didn't like that because it would take people offline. Um, and, and, and you mentioned in, in your discussion on um, All in the Mind about, you know, one of the best things you can do is being face-to-face, you know, connecting with somebody. And uh, we, we were talking earlier, uh, Chris and I first met in February 2020 online, and we went for two and a half years before we met face-to-face. So we did a lot of stuff, a lot of creative stuff, but in that first yeah. hour of meeting face-to-face, you know, it was like an explosion of our brains, you know, the, our level of creativity. What was going on there? with us yeah so the the neurotransmitters that your brain receives when you're face to face when you actually interact with someone for real rather than online um way more complex and there's a lot more of them so uh, for example so when you actually meet someone when you guys would have met up for the first time first thing i assume you did was probably shake hands we either shake hands or we kiss each other on the cheeks or we cuddle yeah whatever it happens to be whatever you're into um and, and we all, we, all societies, all human societies, have some way of touching each other, which is appropriate when we first meet someone. Uh, even Inuits will rub noses because it's the only part of their skin that's actually showing. So that they, and the reason for that is we have sea fibers on our skin 
which activate an area of our brain which releases oxytocin. And oxytocin makes us more open, makes us more willing to connect to someone, and makes us more trusting in that individual. So we trust that person more. Now, we don't get that when we're online because we don't touch each other. So we don't get that release of oxytocin. So that's the first thing that happens and is extremely important for us to actually connect to each other feel as though we can trust this person, feel as though we can connect with this person and feel as though it's, it's more open and, and we can have an open conversation with them. We don't get it um, when we're online. The second thing is we get serotonin uh, because we can actually read each other's uh, body language. So when we're online like this, if you happen to be you know on Zoom or something, then you only get the top half of their body. You only get the Ooh. shoulders up. Yeah, <laughs> about that much. Yeah, yeah. If not... Less sometimes people have even less showing. So yeah, there's more now. But you still, I'm still not getting your whole body, Chris. Even when you've moved away from the camera, we have a mirror neuron system, which is really important. A mirror neuron system was only discovered in humans in 2000, and that basically is an area of our brain which just mimics what the other person is doing. So when you do something, the same area of my brain that would make me do that lights up in my brain, activates in my brain, and uh, activates my muscles to a low extent to do the same thing. So then I understand, my brain then understands what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's how we understand facial expressions. That's how we understand people's movements. That's how we understand their body language. And so we then mimic what they're actually doing or we... We paraphrase what they're actually doing so that shows understanding. So someone's feeling depressed and they'll lean over and and do all those sorts of things, as we've seen before, and put their head down. Somebody talking to them will automatically do that as well because their mirror neuron system has activated and made them feel a little bit depressed themselves. And so they'll mimic that same movement. Or if someone's feeling happier, open, they'll do that. And I'm sure you've seen teenagers and they're all hanging out together and they all basically look as though they're they're moving in the same way again. And it's a way of connecting with each other. And it releases serotonin and a whole bunch of other neurotransmitters, which are really important, for again, for us to connect and understand how we're both feeling. So that's really important. And if you're trying to be innovative and creative, if you're actually trying to do those things, then you need to make those connections with each other, which are really hard when you're online. And you're going to be constantly second-guessing yourself as to whether or not the person actually thinks what you're doing is okay, if they're actually connecting with your ideas and connecting with what's actually going on. Um, we've also got the problem of eye gaze. So you guys have this really neat thing where you, you indicate to each other online whether or not you know, one of you wants to ask a question or the other one does. Now, normally, and what's hardwired in our brain, we do that with eye gaze. So if you wanted to ask a question, you'd... Uh, if Paul wanted to ask a question, he'd look at Chris so that Chris knew uh, he wants to ask the next question. We can't get that when we're online because we're all looking at each other and everyone's looking at Yeah, so we can't actually stare off. And similarly, if I wanted to tell you, say, about my guitar, I could easily turn and look at my guitar and you both know that I was, you know, wanted to talk about my guitar, but you can't do that online unless, you know, well, you can hear because of where my guitar is. But you know what I mean? Most of the time you yeah. can't do that. So that's another really important aspect of collaboration because when you're collaborating, you want to be able to have this back and forth between each other and you get that from my guys and you get that automatically from my guys, but you can't, again, do that online because you don't have access to that information. And then we've got facial expression perception, which we're talking about as well, and, and so on. So you've got all these things and all these neurotransmitters that aren't being released when we're online. When we're online, we get a hit of dopamine and that's about it. And that, that really doesn't help with this connection that we really need, um, which is really important for 
both connecting with someone but also feeling open and trusting them and understanding how they're feeling so that you can react to that so that you can get in sync with them um and we also know when people are face to face when we're actually um working with someone our brains actually get up in sync with each other there's now beautiful study with teachers and students showing that the teachers and the students um the teachers that connect with the students they all get into the boat by same brainwaves they get into the same synchronization when they're actually learning and the kids learn better when that actually happens and if, if the teacher's not connected with the students doesn't have that relationship then the brainwaves don't sync up and they don't learn as well so that's also really important from face to face that we don't get online yeah i'm picking up a, a, a vibe here but it was face it's uh, after this podcast i'm going to be running an online training session and it's interesting all of the attendees are going to be in Sydney. And I've suggested to this particular client that we could do it face-to-face because they will them be in the office. And the answer was, no, no, no. In case of somebody from outside Sydney, that would mean they wouldn't be able to attend and, it, and we're therefore we'd lock them out. We've got to go online. And what you're highlighting to me is there's a mat. I don't know if we've become lazy or if we've, we've, um, we're relying too much on this technology. We, we're assuming that online is the same as face-to-face. And what you're saying is, no, there's a big cost to this. Yeah, no, there there is a big cost to it, and I I mean I've just I'm t- tomorrow I'm actually talking to someone over in WA because you know they want me to do stuff in WA, and I basically said no, I want to come over <laughs> and do stuff in WA um, in person. So let's do it in a couple of yeah in a couple of months time when we can both when we can organise it, we can organise it with a bunch of different schools, um, and so we can actually do it face to face. And I will often insist that yes. It's okay to do it as a hybrid, but I, I want to do it face-to-face so that I can get the interaction of everybody so that I can feel what's actually going on and I can change things based on what's going on. Because whenever I'm doing a workshop or a presentation, as you would know, right, you, there's a feel of and each audience is different and what they're actually going to respond to is different. And you don't get that. It's hard to get that information online. It's really easy to get it face-to-face. You know when someone's yes. getting annoyed with you. You know when someone's getting <laughs> agitated. You know when someone, when the group's really loving it, really get right. it yeah. and you can start, you know, getting a little bit more excited about it all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I usually... Yeah, not not all the time. If it's in the US or something, I'll do it online. But I do often insist when I'm doing a workshop or a presentation that at least let's do it hybrid so that we can get a whole bunch of people there that, are, that I can interact with. And then we can do the video as well for anybody who happens to not be able to make it for whatever reason, because that can happen. But it's it's also, I think it's it's laziness. I, I compare it in the book um, to having a home-cooked meal versus going out to McDonald's. Um, you know, if you go out to McDonald's, it's easy. You just drive through um, and you'll get this nice hit of dopamine because there's lots of sugar and fat in it, but it's not sustaining and you'll feel sick afterwards, right? And it's not sustaining long-term. Whereas a home-cooked meal, it takes more time. It's, it takes um, more effort, but it, it's so much more sustaining and it's so much better for you long-term. And we know that, that actually spending time with people face-to-face is better for our mental health than any drugs we have out there. So... Actually, spending time with people is, is really, really important. It staves off you know, a whole bunch of neurodegenerative diseases that we're getting more and more now. So, actually, doing it, it's really important for that reason. But also, just because of our you know, anxiety, uh, depression, all these things, they're on the increase because we're spending less time doing what we've evolved to actually do, which is that yes, really spend time with each other. Together. But you said you could go on, and, and maybe we should go on a little bit more because, because you know. <laughs> 
and, and you probably realize this anyway, we know we're talking about workshops and things, but one of the, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, business, one of the biggest challenges businesses are facing at the moment, big, big businesses is trying to get people back in the office, you know, still because of this newfound freedom you know, that they have and, you know, and, and, and the technology and stuff like that. And, you know, okay, it's working, but it's not as good as it could be. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that message that you have about what's actually happening at a, you know, at a psychological and physi- physiological level is incredible. Um, so I'd like to hear a few more <laughs> because yeah. I think these fantastic lessons for, you know, for employers to go, look, you know, we need to get this guy to come and talk to us about trying to convince people to come back into the office. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I, I do do quite, I've done quite a bit of work with quite a few organisations actually getting people to come back to work. And I've gone through both a few experiments to show them the effects, but also just discuss with them the, the, the results and the, the studies. And there's huge amounts of studies out there now, thousands of studies showing the negative impact of devices on our brains and the negative impact of devices on our mental health. Um, that, that people, once they hear about it once they see the data and once they actually experience some of these little nice little tricks that you can do um they're very willing to then spend that extra time in in a car to actually get to work to actually spend time with each other but i think also a lot of organizations are going about it the wrong way so one of the issues i i i find when i'm working with organizations is they'll turn around to their employees and go all right we we want to everybody wants to have this hybrid thing so from now on on mondays and fridays everyone's got to come to work um, and then you can all work at home on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But then we've got a whole bunch of people who have social anxiety at the moment because they haven't been spending a lot of time at work or with peak groups. And what you're saying is that everybody's going to be there on those days, and so that then heightens their anxiety, and they don't actually want to do it, and they end up either quitting or having a complete meltdown. So what we want to do is set it up so that we've got little groups coming in each day rather than having one big group coming in once or twice a week, and those little groups can then work with each other, um, and uh, individuals who are having anxiety problems can slowly be reintroduced to this idea of actually working in an office or working as a group and collaborating with each other. So we need to do it a little bit differently to what a lot of organisations are doing it, but there are ways to do it that, that people really enjoy. And once you start doing it and people start actually interacting again, they really do love it. They don't. They, you do get kicked back from some, um, but... It is so much better for your mental health. It's so much better for, for your physical health. Um, and, and it's so much better for productivity and innovation, creativity of the organisation that we need to rethink it. And it's fine, you know, a couple of days a week working from home, but working from home every day um, is really unhealthy unless you have outlets, unless you're constantly doing that. And, you know, yeah, I work at home, um, but I, I organise that every day I have a coffee with a different person so that I actually meet up with someone, have a chat. And I, I have teenage kids, so I am that as well. After <laughs> school, which, you know, keeps things keeps things active and keeps things going. Uh, but it's really important that we have those and we, we make sure we, we, we cost. I had a horribly capitalist thought as you were speaking that maybe employers should pay their employees differently depending on whether they're in the office collaborating or at home. If it really is more effective... You're going to be adding more value, and you can say, "Well, if you're going to work four days a week from home, 
here's your paycheck. <laughs> if you work four days a week in the office, here's your paycheck. That might focus Fine, on yeah. it. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that one. <laughs> you might get a few Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of like a horrible Okay, that, that's going to get some reactions. Okay, uh, well, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit, a bit more about your own personal use of tech. You said you make a, you work from home, like I'm sure lots of the listeners will, will be thinking. Um, um, for those who can't see Mark, he's he's in a, a, a sort of, I'm guessing it's some kind of office in the backyard. It looks like you're in some kind of um, outdoor house. Um, you make sure you meet up with um, a different person every day for a coffee, so you've got some kind of interaction. What about things like screen time? How do you harness technology or, or at least control it? so that you're not falling into these traps? Yeah, no, great, great question. So, I mean, I love technology. I'm a neuroscientist, right? I, I'm, I've done research. I was one of the first to develop <laughs> a new t- um, a virtual reality. I actually helped with the beta versions of virtual reality to actually get it to work better because it's the mismatch between the two eyes and I'm, I did a lot of stuff in visual cognition and we've developed virtual reality um, as a tool to actually both diagnose and to treat things like anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa so um and i and i can program in five different languages and so on so i love technology and these things are awesome it's just the way we're being manipulated by tech companies is what's actually causing the problem and one of the big problems as we said before is the likes that are going on on social media and and all of the notifications we get and it's facebook have admitted that they use intermittent reinforcement with the like so they don't send you the like when you actually get the like but they hold off on the like and they send it to you which is optimized based on intermittent reinforcement to make sure you get most addicted to facebook as quickly as possible so these things are that that's the problem with it one of the ways to get around that is uh, just to turn off all your notifications because it's the notifications which are the things that are actually interrupting us and so i turn off all my notifications both on my laptop and my and on my phone, and then I tell everybody who might need to get in touch with me urgently at any time to call me. You know, the old-fashioned one. You actually, they, they still work that way. You can actually, yeah, you can actually talk to someone on there. So my phone rings if someone talk, if someone calls, but there's no other notifications, including the text, so that I don't get interrupted by that. Um, during the day and that I don't get all those texts from Facebook and all the rest of it, which are basically just ways of actually trying to capture my attention. Because we know now that every time your attention gets captured by something, every time you get a like, every time you get a buzz, every time you get a notification, your attention goes to your phone or goes to the little icon on your computer, which says you've got another email, for example. Every time that happens, your attention switches, which means you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing. So every time you get a buzz or a beep or a little icon comes up, you lose 90 seconds of your day. Now, imagine how many times that actually happens during the day. Wow. A huge amount of time we're actually yeah. losing from our days because of that, which is why we're less productive now than we ever have been in the past. So by getting rid of that, you get a huge amount of time back in your day, which is just awesome. Um, the other thing I do is, because I have teenagers, um, and, and my daughter has a phone because she travels to school and she does a whole bunch of stuff after school and all the rest of it. Um, we all have, myself, my wife, my, my kids have on their phones and on all their computers have um, tracking apps. So the, the health apps, which actually tell you how much time you've been spending on all the different things. And then once a week, we all get together and we have a look at what we've all been doing 
on the thing. Now, I, because I work at home, I'm always the worst. So my daughter has this opportunity to actually have a go at me and say, Dad, do you really need to be spending that much time on LinkedIn every day? Or, Dad, do you really need to be you know, spending that much time yeah, on email yeah. every day? And we can have a discussion about why I need to do that or why I don't need to do that. And sometimes she's right. And I go, yeah, you're right. Instagram isn't really that important for my business. I don't need to, uh, to do that. And I delete it from my phone. So, again, having that co- the conversation with other people in your family about what's important and what's not important. And it teaches her as well, right? It's a great conversation to be having with her. I mean, she's better than me, which is great. Um, but she may not have been better than me if we hadn't had those conversations on a regular basis about what's important and what's not important. And then we have, we have downtime. So, from 9 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning, all our phones go on um, dead thing so a, a nighttime um, mode which means that they can't text and you can't email you can't do any of those things so yeah. that's another thing we don't have any phones in any bedrooms um because yeah i don't see the point in that and i yeah. don't think we should and my daughter has an old-fashioned alarm clock and so do i i, I always find it funny because everyone says you know when i say oh no phones in the bedroom and they say oh well but but what about your alarm clock and i'm like well you can't I <laughs> little alarm clock is ticking the sun. All the time when yeah, the last class exists. It still exists. You can still buy it. Uh, yeah, that's another one that I, I see. Yeah, that's, that's very... Well, I've got two teenage kids as well, Mark. So uh, and my daughter's 14. And so the, the phone, it's a, it's, a constant, it's a constant battle. So, uh, yeah. But that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a really great, uh, great insights. It would... It, yeah, there's, there's so many things going through my head. Um I'm conscious of, of your time, though. You, you've given us firstly some very practical lessons on managing technology, but I think bigger than that, the, this this message, which I guess is at the, the core of the book, the Connected Species, is how we can break down. What we need to be aware of how technology can build barriers between people, and then how, with some relatively simple tricks. And the tricks are over. Sort of bring people together and communicate and collaborate better. I think that sounds like the much bigger idea that you're onto, and that I find very inspiring. Well, um, thank you. Oh, it was at all. It's been lovely talking to you both, and uh, yeah, very inspiring to see two people who are who are trying to get the message out there. That, you know, we can be creative and we can be, uh, uh, yeah, doing things m- more innovative because yeah, we need more of it. Um, I think. Um, Sadly, there's not a, enough at the moment. And, and as, as I said, we've got this amazing technology. Let's start using it in a way that can you know, catapult our societies to new, better, higher heights rather than what's happening at the moment, which is most of us are, are suffering <laughs> and you know, wages are going down and all the rest of it yeah. in real time, uh, which is crazy given that we have this amazing technology and this major opportunities um, mm-hmm. in the world. Well, well, thank you, Mark. And look, all the best with your book. I'll certainly be getting a copy as soon as it comes out. Uh, I'm yeah. fascinated to read it. So, uh, look, it's been absolutely sensational. And uh, and thank you for your time. No problems at all. Thank you. Thank you. So, Chris, I think you need to uh, nick off to Monavale and have a coffee with uh, Mark. That's right. He lives up the road, and I would love to meet him face to face. It's such I mean, you and I both work alone at home in our home offices, and it's a trunk. Um, it could seem effective. I, I feel like I've got to switch off my technology. Uh, I've got to get out and meet people face to face. And this idea of recognizing the tribes, the in tribes, and the out tribes, and get it reframing the way I relate to people, I think is really powerful. So much good stuff from Mark. I'm definitely going to download his new book. 
um, the connected species. I'd encourage everyone listening to do the same. I've listened and I've mucked that up and I call it the connected brain, but just the connected species, uh, how our brains can save the world. But uh, look, the bit that I took out is this thing about some tips about brainstorming in a group and that whole thing about name tags. You know, you've got to extend the definition of the in-group to include everybody. And with name tags for people in different places, uh, actually already sets up a division. Absolutely fantastic insight. So, uh, yeah, it was absolutely great. And I, too, will be buying the book, The Connected Species. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode, another one in our neuroscience season. Uh, please leave a comment. We'd love your feedback. Um, I feel slightly embarrassed to say leave us a rating after Mark had highlighted what our danger ratings are. But, yeah, we're in the online world for this podcast. And please do leave us a rating, hopefully five, despite what Mark had said. Um, and, of course, tell your friends. We want to get the message out there about creativity Um, And the more you spread the word, the more it helps us, it helps our guests and gets people to be more creative. Fantastic. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this program and uh, please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Common Creative Podcast. We'll see you then. Ciao.